The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Being is from... I'll just, I'll just start. You can grab your, your Bible and, and join us. Today's scripture reading will be from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Not quite sure what that is on the Blue Bibles, but again, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And it reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall, be, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Our Father God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for um, the joy that is inherent in this day because everything is different because a baby was born in Bethlehem. Uh, as Pastor Victor mentioned, even the way we mark time is different. All of history is coming to its culmination because of this child who was born. I pray that this morning you would orient our hearts to live that way, that we would, we would know that the king is on the throne, that all things are coming to a close according to his plan, and that would give us great comfort and joy. Lord, we want to pray for those in our midst who are hurting this morning. We want to pray for the Bratcher and Judge and Lord families as they deal with so many health problems and heartache situations. I ask that they would know that you are with them, Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that that would be palpable to them today, that they would know you are reliable, that they would know that you are a sovereign and a generous king, and that they would cry out to you. 
Lord, we pray for the Rugi family as they head to Georgia for Chris's grandfather's funeral. And we ask that your true and lasting peace would permeate the complex family dynamics that await there. And Lord, we, we pray for those who are um, just come down with sickness um, today. We pray for Sandy McManus. We pray for Liam Serfolio. It's not anyone's plan to be sick over Christmas. So we just ask that you'd fill them with joy even as they remember um, what Christmas is all about and um, that that can't be taken away by uh, a flu or virus. And God, many of us have traveled elsewhere today to be with family or others of us have received family. Some of these um, relationships maybe haven't connected in a while. So we pray that uh, those relationships would be open and sincere. They would be strengthened by this time together. We pray for conversations that will happen at these gatherings, that they would be full of grace and truth. So help us to lovingly represent you to family members who maybe so far have spurned you, um, who have spurned life in Christ. Help us to uh, speak well and speak wisely and to keep our mouths shut when that's the best thing. Help us also to encourage those who are confused or who are hurting. And Lord, also give us humility to receive from others the ways in which you would have them speak truth to us or serve us. And God, others today on Christmas wish that they were with loved ones, but today brings back feelings of loss or of lack. And I pray that anyone in that situation would know their belonging in the family of God. They would know that it is something eternal. It is a reality that is growing, is real, and the best is yet to come. Fill them with hope this morning. And God, some of us have been running ourselves ragged and then the holiday break um, feels almost equally as demanding. So I pray that you would teach us to slow down, to slow down our lives to a pace where they can truly be marked by intentional worship. Help us to lift up our eyes this morning to marvel at the one of whom it is said, his resting place is glorious. We ask all these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, in 1817, the poet Percy Shelley um, came out with a new work about power and time. It was a sonnet. And it described the ruinous statue of an ancient ruler below which was found the inscription, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But the poem ironically observes that nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Any student of history or even any observer of modern times can perceive the futility with which humanity attempts to build empires or claim lasting strength. We see that one ruler falls and another one arrives, and so go the cycles of civilizations. And even the best of leaders or the best of political movements disappoints and perishes in the end. And the book of Isaiah notes that beautifully, brilliantly articulates that same rise and fall of kingdoms, that futility of man-made power. But the book of Isaiah doesn't leave us there. 
It gives us good news that a different order is coming. And at Christmas, we long for assurances like this because, you know, I think we all have a built-in yearning to belong to a transcendent realm where goodness and wisdom and peace and joy can thrive and even spread. But most of us feel like, you know, that vision is just a child's wish. And so we're kind of content just getting lost in some holly jolly brightness for a month or two. But this morning, I want you to leave behind fantasy and I want you to remember a certain hope worth not only singing about, but building your whole life around. Jesus is the unexpected source of worldwide fulfillment and renewal. Jesus is the unexpected source of worldwide renewal and fulfillment. In the opening chapters of Isaiah, we see that God's ancient people, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, would be cut down because they had pursued power and glory apart from God. So God would use the evil empire of Assyria as his lumberjack, so to speak. He's going to cut down and discipline his people. They would suffer and eventually they would go into exile. But then chapter 10 surprises us because it reveals that God would also then turn against arrogant Assyria. It says... Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. So at the end of chapter 10, we've got, on the one hand, the formerly self-righteous people of God, now oppressed people, and then we've got the violent oppressors alike, and they're all just a field of stumps. They've all been cut down. The whole world has been leveled. And, you know, I think we see how God operates in that world in that way, don't we? We see this is still the case because with the people of God, when we love power more than we love God, he cuts us down to size. And the empires of the world, they run a certain course and then God cuts them down, whether we're talking about Chinese dynasties or Scythians or Mongols or Persians or Greeks or Ottomans, Spanish, French, British, Earthly power doesn't last. And if you think that America is going to be any different, I mean, it's, we need 750 more years before we even reach the, the length that Rome existed as a power. So, as the book of Hebrews puts it, here we have no lasting city. No lasting city. But into that reality, Jesus came as the unexpected source of lasting glory. And we see in verses 1 and 2 that his ancient purposes grow while the kingdom of this world ends in ruin. His ancient purposes are growing. We read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So picture this. Among this whole forest of felled trees, we see something mysterious emerge. While Assyria and kingdoms like that are felled to never grow again, Judah is felled to then have new life suddenly emerge from its stump, something new from something old. Now it speaks of Jesse, and Jesse is a total unknown except for his role as the father of King David. So what this text is promising is not just another son of David, not just uh, um, another Davidic king prone to failure, but actually a new and greater David. Even more unexpected, though, is that the shoot above ground, verse 1, 
is also somehow the root below ground. You see that in verse 10. How could this new ruler be called the shoot of Jesse, so, so protruding from Jesse, but also the root of Jesse, somehow giving source and life to Jesse? It doesn't make sense. But such is Jesus, the founder and the architect of the city of God. When King David in ancient Jerusalem was laying the foundations of Zion, it was only as an agent of his own descendant, God the Son, who would take on human flesh. So there's this, this um, circular nature to it. Jesus has this dialogue in, um, in the Gospels with some of his opponents who think that they're pretty cool because they were uh, descendants of the ancient patriarch Abraham. And Jesus tells them, you know, Abraham was excited to see the day when I would come, when Jesus would come. And they think he's crazy. And they say, you're not even 50 years old, and you think you've seen Abraham? And Jesus responds, truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. And similarly also, Jesus was the source and the fulfillment of David's line. And similarly also, even before you think Jesus was in your story, he was at work there. And his life springing up in you is the fulfillment of purposes that were of old. Now, a shoot doesn't look like much at first, right? You can just imagine like a little green thing emerging. But back in chapter 4, we saw how this shoot grows into a fruitful branch that brings safety and purity and joy to the people of God. And Jesus is that tree of lowly beginnings. That's why the Christmas carol asks, why lies he in such mean a state where animals are feeding? You know, we can think to the, the nativity story. Why is he welcomed into the world by dirty shepherds? Why did he have to flee as a toddler for his life and live as an exile? And then when he was able to return to Nazareth, why did he grow up in relative poverty and obscurity? It's because the line of David had been cut down. It was a stump, and, and no one notices when this, this sprout begins to grow out of those roots. Jesus is truly the unexpected source for what we're looking for. He takes on flesh, and he emerged in this world contrary to all the rules that we thought we knew. But how can we be so confident that he will usher in the worldwide renewal and fulfillment we're looking for? Well, in this passage, his qualities assure us that this is a reign that we want to live under. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the spirit of the Lord is on this ruler who's described so that he can perceive the true nature of things. He can solve the most complex of problems and work and act in power and in the truest reliance on God. He would delight in exalting God on this earth. And this was fulfilled in how we see the Spirit of God descending on Jesus at his baptism, testifying that Jesus is this ruler. Jesus is in every way fit to rule. And then we're given just a sampling of his deeds here as ruler, that he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So he'll be in a position to offer perfect justice because he has perfect knowledge. Every other leader that we elevate to fight for the down and outs, he or she may get some results for us. But then what happens? The pendulum always swings too far where then the rights of others are neglected. And so the cycle goes. 
But Jesus, the ideal king, he doesn't curry favor with the powerful, nor does he unconditionally favor the down and outs just because they are somehow his voting block, but rather he is beholden to no special interests, and so he ensures justice for all, from the least to the greatest. And he sees more than eyes or video cameras can detect. He knows far more than surveys or studies or polls or informers can tell him. And this is exactly the Jesus that we see described in the gospel accounts 750 years after the time of Isaiah. He turned the tables on the powerful exploiters. He honored the faith-filled outcasts. His wisdom enabled him to see through every plot and device of his enemies and to perfectly understand the times, to understand what was required of him. And he spoke words that still confound us and haunt us and change us today. His judgments penetrate through our facades and his truths set our feet on solid ground. Another way that Jesus is able to uniquely rule, verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So if there's any doubt that this ruler who's being described is more than mortal, well, the, the, this power of his spoken word certainly gives us certainty. What this means is that when the time is right, the battle between good and evil is not a desperate struggle full of uncertainty. No, with this king on the throne... One little word will bring down the most heinous of enemies because the one who creates with words can also undo just as easily. But we don't need to be terrified of that because righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Doing the right thing and delivering on all promises are so intrinsic to who Jesus is that those qualities are like clothing that just clings to him. And with a ruler like this, you would anticipate that a great transformation would be coming. An ideal state of affairs would emerge. And that's exactly what we're shown in verses 6 through 9. That his kingdom is peaceable and flourishing. So we see pairings of animals that would never dwell near each other. And we see children able to wander into formerly dangerous places. The symbolic language here is meant to remind us of Eden. That's where we're going uh, a return to the Garden of Eden, a better Eden, in fact. And the point isn't that somehow we're all going to become vegetarians in the world to come. No, the point is that the animal kingdom won't be a source of hostility and chaos. Order will be restored. You can see right there in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's the point. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This, this talk about they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now we're back to that image from chapter 2, if you remember, of God's realm as this holy mountain that is growing to fill the whole earth. Right now, as we, we look around us, it, it, we don't see the mountain necessarily. We see a swamp. The whole world around us is under a curse. It's groaning in futility. It's longing for the day when it will be delivered from corruption. And that's why we sing... No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. So no more violent chaos, no more mother's tragic screams, no more senseless brutality and constant fear of loss. Again, 
When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus is the source of this world to come. During his temptation in the wilderness, Mark specifically mentions that Jesus was with the wild animals, and yet no harm came to him. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus doing things to reorient nature. Uh, he gives signs that he has the power to do this. He heals and raises the dead. He multiplies a, a harvest of fish. He tames the stormy sea. And we see him taming humanity too. Jesus gathered disciples from opposing sects of Judaism. And even before his resurrection and ascension, people were coming to him from all these diverse cultures, from even classes that would be considered enemies. They sought him out. And that was just a foretaste of the realm that he is ushering in, in part now, but in totality at his second advent. Which raises the question, if something this good is really coming, why aren't more people aware of it? In fact, this is the most broadly spread message known to man. Across cultures, across time, his signal is going out to all nations. Verse 10 says that in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So we see here that the, the far-off nations will come to recognize the Lord's rule, but when would this happen? Jesus says in John 12 that when he is lifted up from the earth on the cross, he would draw all people to himself. So that was the beginning. And if you read the history of Christian missions, it's just amazing. I mean, there, if there's any place on this globe where this message hasn't gone yet, well, you can rest assured that no other messages are getting in presently either um, for now. But this book has been translated at least partially into 3,589 languages. And those who carry it into hostile places have been relentlessly risking their lives for 21 centuries now in creative ways. And even in North Korea, they can't get rid of Christians. They strike them down and they, they keep popping up. Could there be any more effective banner or signal for the nations than the cross of Christ? He was cut down for our sins, and yet that brought new life, indestructible life. And like the, the shoot of Jesse described here, the message of Christ also, when it's apparently cut down, it emerges again. The most timely question for us today, though, isn't how are the nations coming to Jesus, but rather how are you coming to Jesus. This section of Isaiah actually ends in, in chapter 12, um, has the words, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. So we see these purposes for nations rising and falling. We see the emergence of this ideal ruler, but the payoff is, Will you say, behold, God is my salvation? When we anticipate this peaceable realm of, of goodness and purity, really none of us fits in, if we're honest. You're not free from corruption in this way. You're not peaceable. We all, by nature, belong to the chopped down, desolate kingdoms of this world. But the very way in which the promised shoot of Jesse drew all men to himself was also the atonement to make us fit as he is for that realm, to make us forgiven and empowered 
by that very same Spirit of God. And so we each face a choice between two kingdoms. Your life is going to fall in line with one or the other. Either you will assert your presence in this world, squeezing the most out of a vain existence. You'll live trying to create meaning and belonging, but you'll die fairly lonely and relegated to oblivion. Or your story can be found in this ruler who emerged out of obscurity to found an eternal kingdom, which even now is unfolding and is calling all with eyes to see into worldwide renewal and fulfillment in him who was the source of it all. So this Christmas, rejoice because this is all going somewhere. History isn't ultimately just vain cycles of futility, but it culminates in the righteous and faithful one. He is known from long ages past. He is manifest for you today to receive so bow to your rightful king let's do that in prayer right now sovereign of history gracious God merciful father we thank you that the king we need has come he is renewing history right now and Lord we want to be a part of that some of us in this room we, we may feel like stumps we may know that we have been cut down in, in some important ways and we feel that so we ask that you would bring the new life of the shoot of Christ into our lives let that be our story going forward and Lord others of us have welcomed you have been welcoming you into our lives and we pray that that shoot of Christ that's, that has been emerging we ask that it would continue to grow that it would flourish, that it would become a fruitful branch, that it would become part of the tree that is going to fill the whole earth. We thank you for your faithfulness to do these things. We thank you for your mercy, your kindness to wrap us into your purposes. We love you, Lord. Amen.